0: So I'm joined by uh, Ron Shum, head of the foreign exchange division of the Bank of England for our um, dial-in day. Uh, Ron, thank you for joining us. Hi,
1: Colin. Oh, thank
0: you. Nice to talk to you again. And I thought we could start with I think the question that's on everyone's lips, we've canvassing opinion pretty much, I guess, from everyone around. How do you think the markets have functioned? How do you think FX markets have functioned during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I think all financial markets have faced a lot of challenges over the last month you know, given the intense volatility we've seen at the same time as participants are adapting to very different working arrangements. And I would say that generally the FX market seems to have held up, you know, relatively well, particularly compared to some other markets. And Spot FX in particular I would say has functioned well. In Spot we have seen extremely high volumes. And that's a time when you could reasonably describe it as the most intense period of volatility in years. And we have seen some prices widening and bid offer spreads increasing, but I think at least some of that would be expected given the volatility. And I don't think we've observed any participants being constrained from transacting. The swap markets are a bit different. There were clearly dollar funding stresses, and these played out in FX forward and swap markets. I think at a global level, there was a dash for cash in response to the uncertainty of what the pandemic would mean for companies and individuals and a real search for dollar cash in particular as the global reserve currency. I would say in response to those stresses I think central banks have acted quickly and effectively. The Federal Reserve coordinated with Bank of England, ECB Bank, of Japan and Swiss National Bank to reduce the cost of the dollar lending operations funded by the swap lines. Also lengthened the maximum maturity to 84 days and set up daily seven-day swap line operations. So those swap lines have seen amounts sort of $400 billion of usage, which I think has highlighted their importance in providing some stability to the market. So taking a step back, I think spot functioned pretty well, particularly in the exceptional circumstances, whereas funding markets did require a bit more support.
0: I mm. are you surprised to a degree by how well the spot market functions? I mean Obviously we have had these little sharp moves but I mean to be fair it's a supply and demand world isn't it? I mean are you a little bit surprised how well the spot market has handled it?
1: I think in particular I would say as you can imagine I think central banks always have concerns and cautions and worry about terrorists and I used to be the head of stress testing at the Bank of England so I'm fully trained in this uh, <laughs> you know, negative thinking and when you're imagining that we're going to take whole swathes, you know, 90-odd percent I think in most cases of employees out of their offices in the uh, yeah. major FX trading centers simultaneously and how will markets function. I, I think I have been positively surprised. Yeah. I didn't think they'd totally stop functioning but actually, you know, I think it's been a really impressive effort by all the institutions involved and I think it has been a positive surprise.
0: I guess it's the benefit of a known unknown, isn't it, that we always talk about? It was a kind of gradual step into lockdowns, for instance, and that kind of helped, didn't it?
1: I do think, like you say, that the sense that it could be seen coming and the experience that central banks had from talking to Asian colleagues and banks had from observing their experiences in their, in their Asian centres helped everyone start preparing early for the tail scenario, but I think a plausible tail scenario of needing to deal with a lockdown and continue operating through a lockdown. And so I think that the financial sector. And the FX market, in that sense, was preparing well ahead of the lockdowns actually occurring, and, and that probably helped.
0: I'm fascinated to know. I mean, so I mean, obviously, we've been hearing a lot today, you know, the dial-in day, around you know what it's like with the working from home and, and the dispersal of staff. What's it like at a central bank?
1: Yeah, so it's exactly the same. We moved to split site working relatively early on, a few weeks before the mandated lockdown and we we sort of had pools of staff that wouldn't meet in our contingency site and the office and home. And as a central bank, as I say, we're used to taking a caution approach, so we also started testing with the people at home, working out what new equipment would be needed, what software would be needed, what ways of working might happen, what compliance policies we might need to change. And then when it came, the move to large full-scale working from home was challenging, but I think being an early mover certainly facilitated the transition. I actually had to go into the office on one day recently because my laptop had an issue and I needed technology to fix it. It's eerie in the city of London, there's no one there. There was like a couple of critical technology staff on site, everyone else is home. Certainly we're able to do all of our market operations from home, our analysis from home, the payment systems operating from home. So we have the contingency plans for what if we needed to get people into the office for an emergency if there was some sort of network issue but actually it's remarkable how everyone is working from home. And the one observation I'd make on a sort of cultural level is that sometimes I think in standard times when a number of people are sort of in a physical meeting and people are dialing in. The people sort of dialing in can struggle not to be second-class citizens and meeting participants and chairs have to be really careful to be inclusive and bring in. But where everyone from the governor down is a sort of name dialing into a call on our internal chat and call service, it's really equalizing and it really means that everyone is sort of working on the same basis and able to contribute. So um, yeah, there's some thoughts for us about culture and what it means going forward as well, I think.
0: Yeah. Is it the same for new operations as well? I mean obviously you know, the banks instigating new operations in markets at all times. I mean is that just as easy as maintaining current operations?
1: So of course any new operation can be challenging and in supporting sort of critical economic functions we retain the option to have small groups of staff in the office together appropriately socially distanced of course. Where we think that that's necessary for resilience. And I think, you know, maybe on the first day of a few operations, we have certainly done that. But actually, it has proved over time surprisingly possible to access all the bank systems and do things from home. And things like the chat sites and screen sharing have really meant that staff can work together even from different locations. I mean, one example is you may have seen that over Wednesday and yesterday, we issued our 2020 bond at the bank. And that was done without any reference to LIBOR um, for the first time, so some different edging transactions underlying it and done from home for the first time and that went exceptionally well and was managed successfully. So I'm really impressed at what people have managed to achieve from the different locations and to go back to my start point in FX spot market functioning, maybe we're all learning we can actually do a bit more from home than we actually thought.
0: Mm. Which I guess would lead me into the next question around sort of the bank's operations because. Obviously, a big part of what you do in the foreign exchange division is market intelligence and market surveillance. Obviously, you can overcome the challenges, I guess, when it's a dispersed workforce within the bank, but then is that challenge not multiplied multiple times when you're dealing with dispersed contacts in the market? How's the market surveillance and market intelligence function worked?
1: Yeah, I mean this was absolutely not the time for us to reduce our MI gathering. I mean those efforts are crucial to our understanding of financial markets and the events that are going on in them and MI provides bank policy makers with really crucial insights beyond the publicly available data and that's really valuable in supporting monetary and financial stability policy makers and certainly we have maintained regular engagements with market contacts, central banks and other regulators, obviously all virtual through this period. But there has been a lot of that going on and we we haven't in any way cut back on that. If anything, we've probably tried to bring some staff in from other areas and do a bit more. And I'd highlight three specific aspects actually. I mean, first, We've been agile and ensured that we've focused our efforts where they are most relevant at this time and where contacts would also be keen and available to have a discussion at this time and yeah. I think that's mitigated pressures on our staff. Um, second, we have convened a couple of London FX Joint Standing Committee calls to share perspective across a diverse range of senior market participants regarding both market functioning and business contingency experiences and I think those have been immensely valuable. And the third thing is we have remained, as you'd imagine, in continuous close contact with our key international central bank counterparts, um, both bilaterally as part of wider forums, such as the GFXC or the Bank of International Settlements meetings. And two examples, I think, of where the MI has fed into real world action were the central bank swap lines that I mentioned earlier. Where I think observing prices and interactions with market contacts identified the need for a speedy and coordinated response from the central bank community to facilitate dollar funding. And the second thing I'd mention would be the GFXC statement on FX market conditions, where market contacts indicated a potential need to raise broader awareness of the expected large FX flows in the quarter-end fixes.
0: That definitely seemed to work. I mean, uh, anecdotally, from my point of view, there was a lot of positive feedback to the fact that it highlighted the issue. And I guess it is, you know, this, what the GFXC is there for in many ways, isn't it? One other thing, actually, I guess, before we move on to... <laughs> Amazingly to our audience, what we were originally going to talk about when this was first arranged. Um, (laughs) Obviously, the GFXC, you mentioned the GFXC and JSC. There's a work stream on um, algorithmic trading taking place at the GFXC. What sort of perspective have you got from how algos have operated in the current market conditions?
1: I would say that to talk about algos, I think... Broadly, and I've been clear on this in a past speech, you know, markets are going to evolve regardless of what central banks think and that central banks have to adapt in order to thrive. And you know, Technology is a positive thing and I think increasing electronification of trading means that central banks have to adapt how they monitor market developments to have a more diverse range of market intelligence contacts and to improve analysis of data, data sets. But to where you started, it also may mean changes in technology that the soft infrastructure of markets such as market practices and codes of conduct need updating and naturally the FX Global Code is key and I think it's right that one of the working groups in the three year review is focused specifically on algorithmic trading. But a third area is understanding the impact of algorithms on market resilience which Mm. central banks care about from a financial stability perspective and it is in this area where I think. You know, we can perhaps make some observations about recent events because I think the recent volatility and working from home experience has put some of the attractions of execution algos into focus. Because you know, liquidity has perhaps been more difficult to find and the right execution algos fundamentally that they're there to reduce search costs. Execution algos can also be quite an operationally useful way of transacting, given the majority of traders now work from home, they have audit transparency, a control that might have to be loosened for some working from home, and they may be able to be set in train, and overseen more easily remotely than perhaps a human trader executing via voice. So while in general FX markets, I think, have shown themselves to be resilient, it's perhaps true that some of those in the market with the option to trade via algo as a complement to other methods may have benefited from that. And we've certainly heard, as I think you have, that execution algo usage has increased during the period. So, you know, central bankers will continue to worry, as is our our job, about market functioning risks from increased algo use. But I think it's important to reflect that, as we've seen, there's some situations where they may reduce risks too.
0: So, to move on, um, listeners will not be aware of this, but yet another thing that's been hijacked by the pandemic is we were originally going to be talking about the Triennial Survey last year and a few Mm. issues out of that. So we'll spend a few minutes on that if we can. I guess my key observation if we look at spot markets in particular was there was this 20% growth in spot trading. The public platforms that report data and anecdotally some of the others were seeing, if we're going to be generous, probably flat trading. Do you think the sort of triennial survey signaled any market structure shifts in FX markets?
1: Yeah, I think the Triennial is known for highlighting border market trends and of course, as with any survey, it's not perfect, but it is, I think, a infrequent but quite detailed survey of the market, so we do place weight on what it says about market structure changes. And I'd highlight three things, actually. I'll start with your topic of private liquidity pools, but I might also mention perspective on FX swaps and FX settlement risk. So, regarding private liquidity pools, I think one argument for seeing the rise of these pools has been the removal of technological barriers and costs and market participants can effectively curate their own liquidity pools of removing the middleman platforms and brokers and maintaining a level of confidentiality to their flow. I mean, people always talk about internalization, and I think they have different definitions, but I think increasing in- internalization is-, is often an aim of liquidity to providers, and-, and maybe this says that they've been achieving a bit more of that. For me the biggest single development in the trainnial though was the large increase in FX swap volumes. I mean yeah. globally FX swap turnover accounted for most of the overall increase in FX trading between the twenty sixteen and twenty nineteen surveys, rising from two point four trillion a day to three point two trillion in 2019. And so when we think of that headline number in the trillion 20- or survey, actually, you know, spot while it gets a lot of our day to day focus is actually far from the majority of that. Yeah. And I think this led us to do a lot of more digging into the swap market and what was driving the increases and I think contacts supporting us for an article actually which we put out in the Bank of England's quarterly bulletin noted the growth in cross-border bank lending and was consistent with the rise in use of FX swaps as a means of funding liquidity management and that banks located in jurisdictions with access to relatively cheap liquidity were able to swap their local currency liabilities into dollars by the FX market in order to maybe lend in dollars at a higher rate. And further, the FX swap market is skewed a bit towards the short end, meaning that growth in the use of swaps can result in more contracts being rolled over in any one month, which further increases swap volumes. And I think that understanding of FX swap markets and how they're evolving and what they're being used for was helpful when central banks came to interpret markets during the Dash for Cash in March and enabled that rapid response.
0: One thing I was say that is interesting is, I mean, how do you sort of view the basis blowouts that we saw, I guess, around the, the time of the lockdown, wasn't it, when you know, we had some pretty hefty basis emerge in, you know, in, in, in FX swaps markets compared to money markets?
1: Yes, indeed, and it was in part those bases blowing out. You know, alongside sort of intelligence that the bid ask on swaps was wider, that it was taking longer to get swaps done, that there were some sort of quantity challenges on transacting that definitely led to you know, central banks being keen to step in. One question is on the face of it, there was a lot of money left on the table by banks intermediating, sort of not maybe putting more dollars into those FX swap markets in arbitrage. And, you know, there was some similarity there with what we observed in the September repo spike in the US last year, where again, on the face of it, there was this room to step in. And I think there's been a lot of debate about whether this is some sort of regulatory pressure or um, liquidity or operational pressures on banks and how, individual desk limit set. And certainly, I would have observed from the sort of internal discussion we've had that you've got people in banks heading into a very uncertain situation, they're trying to set up to work from home, they're trying to get that working, they know that there's a shock coming of uncertain magnitude, they might need to lend out significant amounts to their corporate clients and mid-economy customers. And the sort of phrase that we sort of got is, why try and be a hero? You know, if you're doing trading and it's going okay, and your back office staff are maybe working longer hours than normal to try and settle it all, and there's additional margin calls coming in either way and requiring securities to be posted around, you know, why try and suddenly push out at that time? And you know, maybe that's what needed central bank support then to step yeah. in. But I do get the sense that um, we are seeing the return of a bit more of arbitrage now in in those FX swap markets with the bases, and we have seen them narrow um, quite significantly.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, you mentioned settlement there, because one other thing that happened in the Trinia survey in 2019 for the first time was they collected data on FX settlement. Some of the numbers are quite uh, interesting. What was your take on the settlement data in terms of how you think central banks want to consider policy formation going forward to meet the challenges?
1: That was actually the other aspect I was going to mention that struck me, and we had the special add-on to the survey to understand how transactions were settled and what proportion were settled without payment versus payment protection. You've seen the numbers, but the results showed that of 6.6 trillion daily turnover in the FX market, that amounted to gross payment obligations of 18.7 trillion, once usually two times for spot, four times Mm. for swap, etc. And of that, around $9 were settled without payment versus payment protection. So that's a really large number every day. And this is in the face of sort of guidance in the code and also guidance from bank supervisors around the world that sort of FX settlement risk should be mitigated wherever possible. So understanding why the level of settlement risk remains high in FX markets and indeed seems to have grown. Despite the existence of sophisticated and relatively accessible PVP providers like CLS, I think should be an important focus on the market going, going forward. And I think it's no secret that central bank supervisors were going to discuss this with their regulated banks following that survey. But I think it's also of interest to local FX committees and, and the GFXC to just understand what any of the barriers or frictions may be.
0: And I guess that would be one of the market structure changes that we probably need to be looking at in terms of I mean I, I guess it's a, it's a natural ambition for these services like CLS to try and expand their services. So is that private public initiative or ethos again, isn't it?
1: Yes, I think it's important to note that the code is not biased to any one provider. Clearly we know CLS is very large, yeah. but I think the key yeah. thing from a risk perspective is avoiding the FX settlement risk. People have noted that there are CLS ineligible pairs. And so clearly there could be issues there where people aren't eligible to use the CLS service in those currencies. But actually one thing that's worth noting is that the total turnover of CLS ineligible currency pairs remained relatively stable between 2013 and 2019. So the reduced proportion of PVP settlement and the numbers that I was highlighting have occurred in advanced economy currencies as well. So I think um, there's something beyond that ineligibility there.
0: Yeah, interesting one to watch. Unfortunately, we don't have time for questions on this session. As you probably have gathered, we pre-recorded this to slot in nicely into our day. However, I'm pleased to say that uh, Rowan will be joining us next week for our Frankfurt dial-in day to be talking about the global code. And I'm sure if you wanted to squeeze a little question in around the triennial survey or the bank's functioning, he could probably answer it then. (laughs) Um, In the meantime, Rowan, thank you very much for joining us. Fascinating insight. It's nice to know that um, the Bank of England is democratizing nicely and everyone's getting on with each other. (laughs)
1: Uh, It's good talking to you, Colin. Thank you.
0: Thanks a lot.